Hello, and welcome to the next episode of Trials with Maya Z, brought to you by TrialHub, a data intelligence platform that helps clinical research organizations and sponsors plan clinical trials. This podcast is about how we can make clinical trials more successful and patient-friendly. I am your host, Maya Z, and in every episode, I will be interviewing a leading expert from various industries in order to discuss some of the major challenges and brainstorm how we can solve them. Let's get started. Hello, everyone. Welcome again to Trials with Maya Z. This is Maya, and perhaps you can hear that I am still recovering from my COVID. So, yes, apologize See if, if my voice is a little bit, yeah, you can't hear it so well. But I will do my best because I have a very exciting guest today. And we will be speaking about something, let's say, we are not speaking about it every day, and we probably should, and she will tell us why. So without further ado, let me introduce you to Lisa Osipenko, the CEO and founder of Concilium Scientific, a non-for-profit organization working to improve the integrity of clinical research. Lisa, tell us a little bit more about your background. Hi, Maya. Thank you so much for this invitation. Very excited to be on your podcast. So I have background in academia, in consulting, and in public sector. And I wouldn't call myself an entrepreneur because I started a nonprofit organization. So it's a very different concept. It's it's Uh, counting. (laughs) So I I used to wear a lot of different hats, but I would say my key defining role has been in the public sector as director of scientific advice at NICE. And that's where my infatuation with clinical trials began. So where I learned the most. And as part of this role, I reviewed with my team and with many experts and colleagues from different organizations and clinical experts and economists. We've reviewed more than 250 clinical programs and learned goods and bads of clinical research. And I think this particular experience led me to establish Concilium. Okay, just for the audience that's outside of the UK, just to explain what NICE is. Yes, NICE is a public sector organization in the United Kingdom, responsible for England and Wales, because Scotland and Ireland yeah. have their own jur- jurisdiction, jurisdiction. They have yeah. their own decision-making bodies. So it's the National Institute for Health and Care Excellence, which has a lot of different functions, but the key function it most famous for globally is deciding whether to reimburse new mm. pharmaceutical products or new devices and new diagnostics. And that's what gets nice into the front page of the newspapers yeah. or on BBC. So, but it should be remembered that NICE also plays a very important role in clinical guideline development, in clinical standards, in general communication of evidence available on different technologies. So it's much more than just the health technology assessment function. Mm, yeah. So basically, that's the institution that everyone from the clinical research industry, especially like sponsors, dream of getting the reimbursement and like the approval and reimbursement after that and similar with other local institutions. So, Lisa, you mentioned that you work on more than 250 clinical programs, the assessment of these programs. And you said that you found out like some interesting things. Enlighten us, actually. What was so interesting and what was the main learning when you were assessing these programs? 
Yeah. So companies come for scientific advice or they should come for scientific advice when they're planning their pivotal trial, because this is the point where we can input in the most productive way. And it's not just nice scientific advice is given by many different organizations, HTA agencies across Europe, in Canada, in Australia. It's given by UNETA, which is a group of HTA agencies in Europe for joint advice. It's given by the European Medicines Agency. It's given by their MHRA in the UK, which is their UK regulator. So it's not limited to NICE, but the whole idea of engagement is prospectively to figure out what needs to be done to meet the needs of the payers and regulators, rather than retrospectively saying, hey, this is the trial we have done. Does it meet your criteria? Unfortunately, situations like that happened. They did not make for a very productive meeting, but sometimes they're logical because the company comes with relevant questions, figuring out what else can be done in terms of what Mm. kind of data can be collected after the pivotal trial has been locked or has been completed and whether further data can be collected through either phase four trials or real world evidence. Of course, it's natural that the regulators and HTAs have divergent requirements sometimes. Well, not sometimes, that they have different objectives. So the company is focusing on regulatory objectives and matching what needs to be done for the FDA, which is a key, key market for every product launch with very few exceptions. And then all the needs of the HDA agencies is needless to say, very challenging. Mm -hmm. So we have definitely seen very good programs, very clear proposals, very genuine desire of the company to do their best for patients for the system to get the product on the market. And of course, we've seen many programs which could have been much, much better in terms of clinical reality, in terms of choice of comparators, choice of populations. And the job was to really explain the companies that gaming the system is not the way forward. And the idea is to really collaborate and try to figure out how to design such a trial, how to collect relevant data to um, benefit themselves and to benefit patients and the clinical community. Yeah. And so maybe you can explain what what it means, integrity in clinical research, and what led you to start Concilium Scientific and start fighting for integrity in clinical research. Yes, I had absolutely golden experience at NICE and it helped me learn what goes wrong with clinical trials. And a lot of times these things might be system driven. They might be driven by different requirements of stakeholders. They might be driven by the sponsor of the trial. They might be driven by simply changing requirements of a fast paced developments in a particular clinical field. So there are so, so many things. It is such a complex environment. And unfortunately, there is no standard protocol where you can look up, say, okay, I ticked all the boxes and now I have a perfect trial. It's an art just like medicine. So we do have guidelines, we have protocols of what should be done, but uh, a lot of decisions need to be made to fit the circumstances. And the process of making those decisions is complex and there's obviously a lot of gray areas. And academics have done quite a bit of research to show that Many trials um, are quite suboptimal and they lead to decision-making while the evidence that coming out of these trials is 
simply not ready. Uh-huh. And regulators and payers know this. They've developed different techniques to try to deal with that. But sometimes these techniques are successful, sometimes they're less successful, and many products get on the market with very suboptimal clinical evidence. And when we have further information, unless it's alarmingly clear information that the product doesn't work, these products stay in the market. That's an issue. And a lot of the things that go wrong with clinical research can be avoided. And uh, it's also important to emphasize that my expertise is only within design of clinical trials rather than their technical and practical execution, where I think there's a plethora of different issues that I'm simply not aware of, but people dealing with actual clinical trial research, actual patient recruitment, sites monitoring, many, many other things. I am simply even not aware. That's a whole other issue of what can go wrong with clinical trials. Yes, clinical trials are very complicated. I can probably compare them to like an organism where there's so many different parties and they have to work together. They're like like parts of the body and they have to work together. And if one of these parts does not work properly, then the rest will fall down as well. So I understand. Sometimes we, like the doctors, we understand, like, for example, one area really, really well and then the rest, we have some idea. And that's why it, it really requires collaboration. And unfortunately also like pretty hard but you said something that really triggered my curiosity you said that there are suboptimal clinical trials like producing suboptimal data and this can be avoided if we know how to avoid this why aren't we doing that or do we do that (laughs) that's a very good question and a lot of times we find out that something is suboptimal when it's too late when the study has reported and either academics or clinical academics go and put a critical review. There's fantastic community on Twitter critiquing clinical trials, especially clinical trials in oncology. A lot of times this comes as it's post-factum, basically, that we find out. It's at the stage when it's under consideration with the FDA or FDA already given an approval. And then clinicians uh, have fierce discussions of, how wrong this trial was that this comparator is completely inappropriate because this is not what we use in this particular setting and these patients are not representative of who we would treat uh-huh. and this crossover was completely inappropriate so all these things come up as a reaction to what has happened and as part of my career being in scientific advice i was in the role to try to preempt these problems and to advise companies running trials proactively to think about this before. That being said, of course, in my career, I dealt 99% of the time with commercial trials. What goes on with academic trials, it's a completely black box. And this is good. It would be a very wrong assumption to think that they are better or they yeah. are perfect in their own way. So unfortunately, there's not even a system that has this kind of scientific advice process for academic trials. Yes, of course, there are grant giving bodies which have their own processes of evaluating protocols of judging integrity of these trials. 
and some of them are good and some of them might not be that good so i'm not there to judge but we do know that there are many academic trials which also could have been better and uh, there are even less tools out there less transparency preemptively ensure that they take the boxes and it's also extremely important to remember that it's always a moving target always a moving target the trial that is recruiting in 2023 and that will be reporting let's say in 2025 will be reporting in a completely different environment where comparator has changed where clinical practice has changed so these are very difficult decisions and questions that need to be asked are at the moment of recruitment of the first patient have you done your best and have you reflected the reality or not so because these judgments also they're very difficult to make and another point to bring along is that it's always it's much easier to be in a critic seat yeah. than in See, the afterwards and not like prevent it actually that that's exactly what i was going to ask you yeah. Is there anything we can do in order to predict actually that this can happen? And I was thinking, because you said how close this is to reality. I know that for years we've been discussing the, the role of real world data. So can this actually help us and do institutions like NICE or other institutions help companies with some frameworks on how they can possibly predict what design is closer to reality in what way and so on and so forth? Yes, of course. I have to give a credit to the payers, to the regulators, to the decision makers. Uh, uh, a, they're under massive pressure to stay with the time and uh, update their processes and their decision-making frameworks. And uh, B, they work very closely with industry trying to make sure they are aligned, even if it may not seem this way. So. NICE, as an example, has been changing its methodology, updating the, it, um, and it does have special guidance on the use of real-world evidence. So do many other organizations. There's a huge emphasis on it now because of massive pressure to speed up clinical trials, to make clinical trials more efficient. And there's definitely legitimate call for this because on one hand, there's a lot of bureaucracy which can be avoided. On the other hand, these measures need to be very carefully taken that right corners are being cut, not the wrong ones. And unfortunately, that's not how life works. So ability of real world evidence to fill in the gaps is there. But once again, the question is for what? Yes, sometimes it's very, very helpful. And for example, if we had a single arm trial for some kind of product and it looked quite promising and it was put on the market. And then we try to figure out the efficacy of this product through real world evidence without comparative evidence. This is really, really difficult unless we have a miracle product. If we have another imatinib coming to the market, I'm sure real world data will provide quite convincing answers yeah. and saying, yes, it does work. Yes, patients do live longer. Yes, it's cured. Yeah. It's almost cured. How often do we see imatinibs entering clinical trials? Yeah, that's actually exactly the one of the issues that one of my guests before mentioned, uh, the fact that innovation is not to the same speed like before. I don't know, I'm rather like trying to be more on the positive side, but I also understand that businesses are trying to optimize their costs on like spend on clinical research. So 
how much are we actually going after the big changes and like the big innovations and how much are we trying to actually get a product that we can just like get a, a good price and a product that works but again is it 10 times better 100 times better than before maybe not so that's also one of the challenges that that, that we've been discussing i hope you're enjoying this episode if you find this topic relevant you'll find it helpful to book a demo with our team on trialhub.com since 2019, we've supported more than 3,000 clinical trials with country, site, and patient feasibility. We'd love to show you how and help you get your trial right from the start. And now, back to my guests. And I wonder, when you say real-world data, real-world evidence, I actually happen to see that whenever I speak about this, different people understand it differently. A lot of people actually see real-world data as electronic health records or claims data in the States. So can you tell me your understanding of real-world data? What, what would you consider a real-world data and real-world evidence? I mean, what's considered that nice, for example? Yeah, the definition is actually quite wide. And uh, yes, electronic health records can definitely play into this. And uh, claims data definitely can play into this. The question is basically the any data which comes out from a non-controlled comparative trial is the data that is collected in the real world, whether it's through a perspective collection of yeah, information yeah. or it's looking back at the records. This is real-world data. So the idea is not in the nomenclature, not in the word that you choose to describe it. The idea is making labeling things clearly and using things for the right purpose to answer relevant questions. So that's why, for example, NICE has a very good document describing step-by-step -step how real-world data collection plans need to be put together, how they can be made consistent, how the reporting should be done to ensure that all of this starts building into transparent, coherent story, rather than pulling information where it exists, trying to fit things together, plug it into the model and see what it says. So mm -hmm. unfortunately, such steps are also necessary because not many things you can or you, people might not have budgets to do prospective real-world data collection. Sometimes some historical data that has been collected in the real world might indeed be very useful. So the idea is proper documentation, proper selection of these sources, not cherry-picking particular points that fit your agenda, but clearly reporting why particular data was used and how all data at disposal was considered. And unfortunately, no, there is no one single source which has said, oh, this is real world data and this is not. So basically, yes, data on a product or on intervention collected in the real world setting at whatever time is the real world data. Interesting. So I'll bring you back to the integrity because you mentioned that Concilium Scientific is fighting for the integrity of clinical research. Tell me what are the mechanisms for fighting for better integrity, for improving the integrity so, of clinical research? Yes, there are many different approaches and you've had a discussion with Till Bruckner, who is the head of Transparamed. So to me, he is the epitome of fighting for integrity in clinical research. 
taking a very deep dive on clinical trial reporting and he has done fundamental work to actually improve clinical trial reporting across the yeah. board. And that has been massive, massive achievement, which has support from student organizations across the world. Companies are very much on board. I have to say industry is doing much better than academics in reporting. So that has been massive change. But there are many, many other aspects. So for example, at Consilium, we have done some work on clinical trial registries. I find that world to be an utter mess. There's no yeah. better word Tell for me about that it. <laughs> because unfortunately, WHO did not manage to take sufficiently to somehow, maybe it should not be WHO, I don't know, but somebody did not manage to take a sufficient lead to say, yes, we're a global entity. Yeah. Uh, tracking clinical trial registration. To me, it makes a lot of sense because there's significant amount of clinical trials, very important pivotal clinical trials, which are international. So there should be a unique source. Unfortunately, a given clinical trial can be registered in many different places. This leads to duplication of records. And unfortunately, many records in the registries are not of good quality and they are self-filled by the sponsor or by the academic group and they might not be updated and for example if someone pulls from the register and it's all public information you can look up a particular study i can look up a particular study you might pull it up and say that's pretty clear that that's very informative that tells me a lot of very informative useful things when you start looking at totality of evidence, for example, if you decide to pull studies on a particular biomarker or pull yeah. studies on a particular disease, you start seeing how much missing data we have. And it's really mind boggling because I'll give you an example that for blinding information, you will see that uh, there's almost 40% of trials that are missing this information in the registry. If there's no blinding, they should say none, which is completely fine, but this field is completely empty. So there are about 40% of trials which are missing information on the phase of a clinical trial. So for 13% of the trials, believe it or not, intervention is not described. So there's yeah. so the quality of data is very lacking. So that's another example. And then as we have had this discussion in terms of what you see in trial design and integrity, but that's a qualitative parameter, which is, is not documented. I mean, it's reflected in the registry, but you need special expertise to understand whether this trial is of a good quality or not. That's a whole another problem. How do you design a particular trial that does answer the clinical question? And a lot of trials are designed to tick a few regulatory boxes. And sometimes we're lucky as a society that the trial does answer the question. And a lot of times we're not. So there are a lot of different components where integrity must be improved. But aren't the regulatory bodies the ones in charge to make sure that the clinical trial answers the critical questions? Yes and no, because the remit of FDA and the EMA is to look at the safety and efficacy of products 
they definitely have very clear standardization and guidelines and their job is not to decide which product is better their job is to decide whether it's safe enough to get to patients and whether it meets the requirement for the endpoint defined and the trial is designed to answer that null hypothesis in the research question but in the end we put products on the market to help patients that's where hta bodies come in and that's usually the gap which can be left open where the trial actually ticks boxes uh, for the regulator and it might not take the boxes for the payer. There's also another thing, because I think it's also important to distinct the discussion with scientific advice, where it's ahead of time, you discuss with the regulator, am I right to do this? Are we okay to do this? Is this the right consideration? Unfortunately, what happens is the regulator often gets a trial that has been completed. Um, Ah. There is a very clear statement of unmet need. They, for example, say there is no treatment in this line of cancer or there is nothing for these patients. There is very significant pressure from patient groups. This is understandable to get at least something rather than nothing. The regulator also feels particular pressure. They open the box and this is what, what, what they see. And then they need to make the decision and they need to say, where can we compromise? Yes, this yeah. trial could have been better designed. Yes, this trial could have collected this, this yeah. trial could have done that, but they have to make the decision. And that's why obviously not every product gets a yes. And things are completely wrong, <laughs> but it doesn't mean that if the product got yes from the regulator, everyone in the decision-making panel was so happy with how that trial was designed. Yeah. <laughs> so. yeah, interesting. So if, if you have to summarize what's your main goal with Concilium Scientific, or at least next year, for example, if you don't have a long-term goal, is there anything specific that you would like to achieve? I, I'd rather give you the ultimate goal. Yeah, that, that's even who better. Who knows how next year pans out. So yeah, while we are working on different projects to improve integrity of clinical research, the main ambition is to really create a community, to create a platform for people, for organizations, for academics, for lone scholars, for any anyone working in this direction to give them a ground, to give them funding, to give them opportunities to succeed with their work at the policy level. Because I'm aware of a lot of organizations, a lot of individuals who do it outside of their main jobs, looking at bad trials, looking at other underreported trials, working with the registries, trying to make this world a better place. But sometimes work is disjoint. Sometimes, most of the time, these people or organizations don't have sufficient resources. An idea is to join forces to bring policy change, because that is the ultimate goal to say, okay, this is it's not the issue of endpoint switching. What can we do to put together framework to put together policy to put together such circumstances where this practice is not widespread where this practice is allowed only for very specific reasons and sometimes endpoint switching is 
reasonable, but the extent to which it's been found between the protocol and the study reported in the journal does not seem to make much sense. So that's just one example, but there are so many little bits and pieces that many people are working on and uh, there is no sufficient support um, in the system to get this very important work sufficient profile and sufficient support to get the quality reviewed, to get the methods sorted out, because in the end, we will all benefit from it. Of and, course. Yeah. So that there is always this dilemma. Should this be a governmental effort, societal effort, non-profit organizations effort, who should lead that? But that's like a probably even bigger topic. And probably there is no single right or wrong answer here. But definitely worth thinking about it. And what about what's your main challenge, Lisa? Well, not your particularly, but like because Theo Bookman, you like incredible people, all founded incredible organizations fighting for the society, for clinical trials, integrity, transparency, but overall, basically, it's for the society. So, how can we support organizations like you? I would say two key challenges. One is the most obvious is funding. And the second one is realization that this is indeed a problem because what happens is society is built around quick gratification, quick wins. And what we're working on is actually a very difficult topic for pretty much every stakeholder, because patients, for example, they might be shocked that clinical research is not the best it can be. They don't understand it most of the time, but they don't want to hear that. This is so, so disappointing, especially when yeah. their relatives are in clinical trials, when themselves are in clinical trials, when they are about to benefit from a particular product that came out of clinical trials. Uh, I mean, very good example right now. There's a big hype around Alzheimer's drugs. Yeah, about the same. How families of these patients want them to have at least some hope to get that drug. And there's a lot to be said about whether these drugs should be in the market and whether they are actually helping patients or not. So a lot of these situations with oncology drugs, especially in the US where People go bankrupt, people sell their houses to get a particular yeah. treatment for 100K per year to extend survival by six weeks or so. So a lot of times patients don't understand it. Of course, interestingly, many other stakeholders don't want to hear that because this is not money-making news. The money-making news is we have a new blockbuster, we have another Ozempic, and that's where the future is. No one wants to hear that this trial was not good enough. This drug is not as good as it they thought it might be. It's not good news for shareholders. It's not good news for the company. It's not good news for regulators, especially let's say they approve the drug and some smart academic is ripping apart a clinical trial behind it. So it's a very difficult territory where being liked is very difficult. So yeah. our objective is not to be liked. Our objective is to do our best on the background. It's not about making headlines. It's not about yeah. getting your name on the wing of a hospital. It's about making sure there's someone on the background ensuring that in the end, 
people don't even need to know how the system works. People need to trust, trust that somebody yeah. in the background has done everything that needs to be done, that yeah. they did enroll okay. into the trial, which will make a difference. And very important to know that negative trial is a very important trial and it will make a difference. Yeah. If of it's course. a well-designed trial, we will know that other patients should not be getting this drug. And it's not about success of products getting to the market. It's about getting things done right. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Sometimes we learn more, not sometimes, always we learn more from our failures than from our wins. So actually, even when a clinical trial does not provide positive results, actually that will that can give us ideas what not to do, which sometimes can be even more powerful than the other way around. Incredible. And I understand the complexity of the whole topic. Pretty sure that's, that we can spend like a lot of time going back and forth, what's right, what what isn't. I can also understand from the patient's point of view of remembering what happened with my family when my sister was going through like the, the nightmare that sometimes you just hope that this works. And I'm not speaking about clinical trials or the drugs. Yeah. You just hope that, and you also want to see the positive news and not focus on the other way around. But at the end of the day, science is about being true so kudos to you and your organization that you're fighting for actually bringing more trust in, into clinical research. And I'll be definitely following you. I have one last question, Lisa. It's something that I'm asking everyone that I'm interviewing. From your perspective, what makes or breaks clinical trials? So I'll be brief. Thank you for this question. I think what makes clinical trials is integrity and transparency and what breaks clinical trials are academic egos and shareholder expectations. Wow, that was very to the point. Very much like it. Thank you so much, Lisa, for your time, for being transparent and for doing what you're doing. And hope I hope that we can find a way to support more of these organizations like you. Thank you once thank again. Thank you so much, Maya. So appreciate your time and thank you for the opportunity to speak. Hope you enjoyed listening to Trials with Maya Z. If you're interested to hear more about how clinical trials can serve patients globally, subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. Have a great day.